0: The JTap Podcast, episode 37. Send it. I can do that. JTACs. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. All right. Um, welcome, everybody, to the JTap Podcast, episode 37. Um, reached out uh, across to the States. Again, however, Lauren, appreciate you coming on and taking the time.
1: My
0: pleasure. Um, like I say every time on this podcast, everyone's opinion on here is their own uh, and not that of any organisation. Um, Lauren, if you take us back to the beginning, you know, give people an idea of uh, you know where you've you're sort of coming from. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? What does school and all of that look like? You know, before you decide that you want to serve.
1: Definitely. Um, so I grew up in Central Florida, um, standard like outdoorsy athletic kid um, um, and went direct to college out of high school. Um, I'm a pretty academic person. I'm kind of a nerd, um, definitely into the sciences, hardcore. Uh, so moving into college, I was set up to do pretty well until I stopped having funding for college and ran out of loans that I could take. So that yeah. kind of changed what I saw in my path rather than, you know, a four-year degree, going on to graduate school, trying to figure out my life through that. Now all of a sudden I needed to figure out how to pay for college and in the meantime find a job that I was passionate about. Um, I started working as an animal control officer and that enabled me to do volunteer rescue work for animals in emergency and crisis situations through the Humane Humane Society of the United States. Um, It was just an incredible opportunity and it really inspired me to get out and look more at other ways that I could participate in rescue on a bigger scale. And that's when I found about out about combat search and rescue within the Air Force. And that that was definitely a platform and a role and a mission that I could passionately get behind. Um, so at that point it was head to the recruiters and try to figure out what jobs I could get. Um, I didn't enlist until I was 21. I had three years in college already. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity and I ended up spending eight years assigned to combat search and rescue helicopters for the Air Force.
0: Was there was there anyone in your family that was in the service, like in the forces or served in the military? Was that around you when you were growing up? I had
1: family friends that had served. Um, a longtime family friend had spent 28 years in the Navy, and he was the one that sat me down at probably about 13 or 14 and went, Look, if you're gonna join the service, join the Air Force. Nobody else cares about you. Um <laughs> But aside from that, um, one of my grandfathers was drafted during Korea, made it all the way to California when the armistice was signed. So he didn't actually see um, in-country service during that time period. And the other one joined the Navy out of high school in between Korea and Vietnam um, to you know, just kind of get out of the small town that he grew up in and provide a better life for his family. So limited service um, for that generation. Um, the generation prior, I had a lot of family members um, involved in World War II. Um, one that was a POW for a substantial amount of time. He was captured at the Battle of the Bulge. Um, And then a couple others, you know, that had some pretty significant service, like D plus two D-Day type guys, not necessarily frontline, but definitely spent a lot of quality time in Belgium and France over the months. Um, So there was a little bit of a tradition of service, but, you know, I don't, I'm not a military brat. I don't come from a heavily military family. And it's something that I was definitely passionate about because of the mission
0: yeah so obviously the specific sort of rescue mission appealed to you there what does it look like you know getting recruited obviously you said you went to the recruiting office and you were looking for what jobs you kind of had an idea that you wanted um you know to be in the rescue mission how does that conversation go how does that place you into the position that you ended up in
1: so for me the first recruiters that i went to were actually active duty um and They're interested in getting you through the process. They'll get you signed up, get you the medical, all that stuff. But when it actually comes down to picking jobs and assigning you a slot to ship out, they just want your butt out of that seat and off on the plane to Texas to go to basic training. Um, Fortunately for me during that entire process, um, my paperwork went through some sort of a hiccup and I got automatically disenrolled from the delayed entry program. And during that time period while they were trying to figure out which piece of paper that they hadn't sent or um, what other documentation they needed, I went and talked to a reserve recruiter for a search and rescue unit um in the Air Force Reserve and I literally walked into this guy's office and went, "Hey, I hear there's a rescue unit in the reserves. I want to be a gunner." And he flat told me, "He's like, I don't know if I can get you that job, but I'll try." Um and it was it was his effort that, you know, put me in touch with the unit that eventually hired me. I went down for an in-person interview you know got a tour of the shop talked to the guys um and this is like you know a straight college civilian walking in and being interviewed by three or four senior ncos and a couple other ncos meeting several of the officers in the squadron um just to try to evaluate whether or not i would be a good fit for the mission whether or not i was actually committed to the job because this was a relatively competitive unit there were a lot of prior service guys competing from these, for these slots, especially coming over from the army or from combat arms jobs that, you know, would rather fly above it than walk through it.
0: Yeah. Is that, so when you're going in, is that it as traditional in as much as you still, obviously you were going to carry on, that was what's going to pay for you to finish your education, like part-time drill yes, so and stuff like that.
1: I'm as far as on the books. In my first seven years of service i did over five years worth of active duty time so training takes more than two years you know most of the time it's pretty long courses you go through seasoning training um additional days to build up stuff you fly the exact same currencies and frequency of events that all of our active duty counterparts do um so rather than the one weekend a month you really hear on tv and in the commercials it turns into one week a month and then at least one solid month every year that you're there for training, you're doing upgrades, you know, you're working with a lot of operational units that would come down and work with us um, for a lot of their training cycles. So it's still very engaging despite being reservist. Um, the part that I really liked about that situation was we had a lot of really high time guys, people that have been flying on helicopters for you know 25, 28 years easily. And those guys were just endless sources of information, of tactics, of hard-learned lessons that it's so much better to learn from listening to that crusty old senior master sergeant than trying to learn it by yourself in a vacuum on an aircraft that's pretty unforgiving.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the the things that's incredible and, you know, is um, really great about the reserves is they hold on to that knowledge. I remember I've worked with units where you walk in and, you know, like everyone's like a major or a senior, you know, master chief or whatever. And you're just like, everybody here has like done their whole career. And then, you know, and then some and decided that they wanted to continue to serve on on whatever unit they were in. And that's a fantastic way to retain that knowledge. And like you said, it's super helpful to have it and pass it on that way as opposed to just trying to, reinvent the wheel you know time and time again you get to just to pull that knowledge um so you you did you you got the path that you wanted you ended up as a gunner on the aircraft that you wanted um what does that look like when you turn up at the unit after all of that training you know what role do you step into as your first job
1: Honestly, the the first job as soon as you show up, it's let's take all of your paperwork, get you on the books and back in the aircraft as soon as possible after training. Um, There are a lot of local qualifications that we go up, we go through as far as additional mission sets. Um, That can be qualification on additional machine guns. So in addition to the M134 um, Dillon minigun, the Gatling style machine gun, you go through 50 cal upgrade on the M2, you go through 240 qualification. You do day water operations, night water operations, um, tethered Zodiac, um, like rubber raiding craft qualifications, Um, working with PJs and working with other um, special operations forces that work with our unit heavily. Um, I was very fortunate that we had a special tactics training squadron in town for the majority of my upgrade period, qualifying all of their new guys so for me, it was day in, day out, five, six hour flights of just literally throwing dudes into the river over and over and over again. <laughs> so you get very, very good at seeing it go perfectly all the way to it go terribly um, and figuring out the little things that you can do to kind of help streamline that process or figuring out like, all right, this guy's pretty smoked. Like this next rope ladder we do, we're gonna need to come down just a little bit more to make this easier on him. So we're <laughs> out here all day. Um, Cause at the end of the day, like you've really got to pick your head up and think more just about than, than just the team that you're working with. Cause like, that's your ultimate customer. We're just a fancy taxi. Um, but being able to give them a better service and better integration with the aircraft is where it's absolutely huge. And some of that is thinking, all right, the more we sit here, the more salt we're taking into the engines, the harder it's going to be for us to keep flying. So if we want to make sure that, you know, we get them, you know, make the most money we can out of this training or out of this mission, you know you have to think about more things than just like your immediate focus of like what's that dude on the ladder doing or what's this guy on the ground up to
0: yeah I, I like that I like the the idea that you know you gotta focus in hard on what you're doing, but there is a bigger picture at, at all times that you need you need to keep in your mind what um so did you how many times- you said you did five years of service in the seven years that you were on that platform? How many times did you rotate away with them
1: so I was probably in I would say three, three major like training rotations um and I did one uh deployment to Afghanistan that was a little a little bit over four months. uh We were there for the winter of two thousand eleven to two thousand twelve um, I tried to get another rotation with them um to the Horn of Africa, but I ended up getting bumped by my own former supervisor he wanted to go so I mean, at that point, things were kind of slowing down. So it was people fighting to get to deploy uh, rather than people not wanting to go again. Um, And when it comes to a mission like rescue, like everybody's fighting to get out the door and go do the job downrange. Like that's what we want to do is we want to be there. We want to be the ultimate professionals. We want to support everybody that we possibly can. Um, So it was a a great opportunity. It was definitely uh, constantly engaging. And even on the years that we weren't deploying, it was all just prep for deployment um if if you scale it where we spend about four months overseas we spend about six months prior to that training for that four months deployment um, so we invest a lot of time into making sure that we are as proficient and highly trained and knowledgeable as humanly possible when it comes to the terrain the conditions we'll face um, what the tactics are on the ground we're going to come up against and just what the overall picture is going to be once we're in country
0: yeah if you could uh, if you could go back and you know speak to your younger self who was you know trying to figure out money for college and this that and the other and, and give yourself three bits of advice um you know for turning up day 1 uh, of your training what would those three bits of advice you'd give yourself be
1: i think because i came into it with a little bit of college and a little bit of life experience like i started off on good footing and the biggest thing i would do is just reassure myself that you know, you're gonna have to go 110%, you're gonna have to put a lot of effort into it. And once you make up your mind on whatever that like, you know, end of the pitch goalpost is, like you just gotta put your shoulder into it and push through it. Um, So staying motivated, staying focused, staying in the books, um, that's a huge part of it. Um, And I was fortunate being in the reserves with that like high level of experience that it was very easy for me to pick my coworkers brains and learn from all of their experience both when it came to the aircraft and the mission and when it came to personal stuff, like keeping up with all of your medical documentation. Um, So when you retire, you're not trying to figure it all out then. Um, If I could have told myself just to focus on that more, think of more things to ask them. You know, know, never let five minutes go by where you don't have some sort of question for them or some sort of experience to glean off of them. Um, I was really lucky that a lot of the pilots that I flew with, their instructors when they were brand new pups were the guys that had survived and come back from Vietnam. So they had a lot of really like beaten into them, solid combat advice that they were then flying in, our, in Afghanistan and Iraq um, and all over the world. So just getting to pull as many of those stories and lessons learned and trying to apply them to bigger and bigger situations. Um, everybody thinks, you know, in a helicopter or going into a brownout landing or into a firefight, that that's where it's the most dangerous. And yes, that is an alarming and slightly dangerous phase of flight. But there are so many little things and insidious things that sneak up on you and you're not necessarily paying attention to because everything else seems fine. Um, You can still pay attention to that that risk awareness and risk knowledge um, to apply those like old school lessons learned to new things that are coming up because everything's going to change. Like humans are one of the best invasive species on the planet. We do an awesome job at adapting to everything that we're given. And that goes for both our side and whoever our adversary is. So just trying to take those lessons and and look big picture with them.
0: Yeah. Um, Is there a funny story on the aircraft that sort of springs to mind? Uh, I I have one where we had to, uh, one of our dogs fall down a well, uh, which was obviously quite bad. Dog broke its... Uh, back and was actually sent home to the, U- the UK in the end but obviously we sent our K9 line and it just so happened that the nearest uh, platform was, uh, was Pedro and they said they'd come get the dog out and I've got the video footage of the medic running to the aircraft and they'd given the dog like they'd tr- been treating the dog for its injuries and everything and obviously his mm-hmm. muscles had relaxed um, and while they're running to it, the wash, you can see the wash comes off the rotors and the guy running with it is uh, getting covered in what's coming out of the dog at both ends. <clears throat> and he just runs up to the, um, and you just see the, the, you know, the gunner step off and literally take this dog and like step back into the aircraft. And the face is just, oh, it's just a beautiful bit of video footage of uh, of, um sort of Pedro okay. coming in, but uh, for a different situation. Is there, is there a story from, from your time that like stands out for you or that would be told if I was to ask one of your friends about it, something you did that you wish hadn't happened? <laughs>
1: um, I I have fortunately been very proactive in learning from other people's lessons of what not to do. Um, I think one of the funniest things that's happened to me that was only a little dangerous. Um, we were doing uh, tethered duck work, which is where you have a Zodiac rolled up inside of the cabin of the aircraft and you repel the Zodiac out. Everybody goes out the fast rope and then they get in the boat, start the motor and ride off into the sunset. But as we're getting ready to take off, our PJs are getting this Zodiac positioned in the door and getting everything you know, just the way they want it. And they want to just partially inflate it a tiny little bit in order for it to not sink straight to the bottom when they throw it out. Well, the problem is the valve on the filler bottle wouldn't close again. So they couldn't stop the flow of air to this rapidly inflating Zodiac inside of a Black Hawk helicopter. So I'm watching a very experienced Master sergeant and PJ, you know, fumble around and try to, you know, figure all this stuff out and he's working on it. I'm watching the straps get tighter and tighter and start creaking. And I'm just thinking, all right, if that thing flips up, at the very least, all the PJs are getting shoved out the door on the other side. Um, at worst, we're all getting crushed. Um, they're, they're a pretty good size Zodiac. Um, and, and I'm just like, well, if it really comes down to it, I'm gonna have to stab this thing. Like, I, I'm going to go, you know, straight up, you know, the shining on this Zodiac <laughs> if I have to. So I pulled my you know, big fixed blade knife out of my bag, and I'm sitting there, like, in my seat, like, crouched, ready to just go to town on this thing. And this poor PJ turns around and looks at me, and his eyes got about, you know, half the size of his entire head, all he turns around and sees the gunner, like smiling with a huge fucking knife. And, you know, he's trying to wave me off. He's like, no, 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 I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And the whole time we're trying to get back off of the water over land so we can land and get everybody out of the aircraft while we figure out what to do with the Zodiac. And fortunately, he managed to get the hose disconnected um, from the filler bottle. So at that point, it stopped filling up. And, you know, we called a, a knock it off for safety things. But uh, it was definitely fun to go through the um, the debrief of this PJ turning around. He's like, man, I turned around and saw you at that knife. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't tell what I was necessarily going to go for. But, you know, try trying to be a good kid, you know, on my platform, like, I don't want that thing to take out my entire team in the back. Like, that's my priority is keeping those guys in one piece. And even though it's training, like, little things get serious so fast. Um, yeah. But... I mean, like as far as, as funny stories go, like, yeah, we've got a couple, um, kind of a, a slightly humorous story. Uh, we had a medevac in Afghanistan um, and I was uh, very fortunately cover bird for this. So we're watching all of this happen uh, while we're trying to support our bird that's picking up the patients. Uh, the call was for two guys that a Marine Corps patrol had called a hellfire strike on for him placing an IED on a roadway. Somehow, these guys had pulses after getting hit with hellfire. <laughs> um, so, we come in and land to pick up these two guys, and it looks like something out of a Charlie Chaplin film. Because the bird lands, and you're like waiting for movement to kind of start, and out up from this like berm or ditch next to this agricultural field pops a Marine with a wheelbarrow. And he runs like all the way up, teetering back and forth, like straight to the helicopter, straight to the door, and dumps this wheelbarrow that has one of the guys in it straight into the cabin. They said it was like a tidal wave, just inside out Taliban guy coming out of that <laughs> wheelbarrow.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. I tell you what, sometimes you've got to make do, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, one wheelbarrow. they're wheelbarrowing
1: all this stuff over the radio for us and we're watching it all happen and I'm like, where did they find a wheelbarrow in Afghanistan? <laughs> just bizarre um so yeah we we went and picked up the second guy that got hit fortunately they hadn't found a second wheelbarrow so he was just on a stretcher but uh yeah yeah it was a it was a little bit of good work for them maybe not the most accurate hellfire strike ever or at least these guys got got super lucky um maybe not completely lucky but uh yeah the wheelbarrow medevac was yeah. definitely an interesting one
0: yeah i like that uh the um the marine corps they're using their initiative to to make it happen so yeah good, st- good oh, stuff good yes. stuff so i'm sure it was <laughs> entertaining to watch yep. um, um if so when you're like going to the, uh, the the aircraft and stuff like that when you're when you're when you're actually operating what kind of things i know obviously you guys will have a certain set of flight procedures certain set of checks that you have to go through and obviously there's there's books and boards and that but when you're actually running an operation, how do you sort of work in your workspace? What, what have you got on, you know, you were talking about having a knife, this, that, and the other. What's like the must go things that are around your workstation in your part of the aircraft?
1: Yeah. So a lot of what we do, and this is like aircrew, almost breeds OCD. So we build what we call our nest, where all of our equipment is located every single time that we fly. And in combat, you just add on a couple more layers of things to that. Um, So for me, if I'm like sitting in my window, I'm fully kitted up, I've got my flight helmet on, I've got some sort of a neck wrap on to try to help fight the dust a little bit, Um, you know, body armor loaded down um, with, you know, extra water, all of my ammo, like that's all on my person, I'm not relying on a bug out bag for that. Um, Hanging up right inside my window is my M4. and then next to that on the back of the pilot that I sit behind, hanging on that seat, is my go bag. Um, so that's got all of my extra other fun stuff that I might need. Um, so usually a couple of like nice arm stretches of extra 7.62 ammo just kind of shoved in there because we would fly in country with the uh, minigun, which is a 7.62 um, machine gun, And then our ground egress weapon was also an M240 Bravo. So having a little bit of extra ammo just in case was always kind of a nice thing to to have on hand and not try to scrounge for, depending on what condition the aircraft was if we did crash. Um, You know, On that bag, I usually had a large fixed blade knife, um, something that was big enough that if I needed to try to punch through the skin of an aircraft, I could do that um, and actually get some purchase on it. The one I carry in particular is a large bench uh, bench made. Um, And then there were just little things that were like housekeeping type stuff. So I always had an extra daisy chain or two. I had a bunch of extra uh, what we call bear claws or clips to turn the um, floor of the cabin into tie down rings and we could use that to load all sorts of equipment or people or strap people down, whatever we needed to do. It just it gave us a lot of flexibility. Um, I would always carry whatever spare parts for the gun that I could possibly find. So the biggest thing for us that we'd always tear apart are um, pins that would hold the feeder delinker on for the machine gun. So I think I had three of those pins when I was flying in combat. So the last thing I'd want to do is my gun be hard bent because that little tiny pin just got the guts ripped out of it. Um, And then, you know, extra water, spare pair of socks just in case, a lot of med kit. I think I probably had four or five tourniquets on just my personal stuff, two of them stationed on my vest, two of them in my go bag, um, like one of them on my console just as a backup. If I don't need it, somebody might. If somebody in my crew doesn't need it, the team might. If they don't, a patient might. Um, the last thing you want to do, especially running around with as many medics as we have, is start running out of medical equipment. Um, and. And that's just the nature of the thing. Like when you get a medevac call, you hope the number of patients is right, but half the time you show up and it ends up being a mass has because when they first called it in, it was only two people. Now it's 12. Ah. Um, so you just, you gotta be ready to expand and fight whatever fight you show up to. Um, so a lot of that's just, you know, being prepared for that. And then like water, a couple little snacks, um, just something that would at least keep me alert and focused. Um, if we did have to sit and wait for reinforcements at a helicopter, at the helicopter, if we got downed or something like that, if we weren't in a situation where we could run away and set up a defensive position, or that sort of um, scenario. Yeah. Um,
0: how but, do you? Yeah, I think that's about it. How do you come? How does it happen that you come off of that platform and move onto the platform you're on now? Is that a uh, duty so, station thing or? So it could have been a
1: station thing. The before my career field um, got converted into flight engineer from just aerial gunner where we all became special missions aviators and had those roles combined um, there were places where that career field would rotate out onto isr platforms Um, for me uh, i had finished my degree and it was a commissioning opportunity so i moved over to uh, one of the wide body isr platforms um, and what I was really hoping for in that situation was I could take all of my tactical experience, all of my operational experience and move that to a much bigger umbrella of oversight and be able to take all of that situational awareness that I have and give people relevant information in a timely fashion that they don't have access to otherwise, you know, before or when they need it, um, to try to like help lay down information about what they're expecting or, you know, Give an aircraft an egress direction where there's not a threat or not activity, you know, to be able to keep an eye on a compound that a team's going in to do a mission on Um, So that's been an awesome opportunity that, you know, When we do get when we do get those missions, it's incredibly rewarding, you know, to be able to pass awesome information on really help, you know, get the mission done as safely as possible for the guys that we have going into harm's way Um, Sometimes we're just up there looking at stuff to look at stuff because somebody's got to look at it and you know, that's 12 hours of my life, but you know, at least we're providing a service and some Intel nerd somewhere is so happy that we're at least giving them that info. So, yeah. um,
0: that is the of world it, that we live yeah. in. Isn't it? Nothing goes without intelligence. So that's a, it's Exactly. We got to have a really it,
1: good looking PowerPoint product before you can go blow it up
0: hundred percent. So biggest change then for you, obviously you've moved onto a different platform. You've had the opportunity to look at things now from that, you know, 30,000, excuse sort of like the analogy, but that 30,000 feet perspective back at that, what's the biggest change that you've seen in your time?
1: I would say like the biggest change for me personally is this is now a desk job where nothing is urgent and even if we have a problem with the aircraft, we have so long to figure out what to do with it. It is so much more forgiving than being 20 feet over the Afghan desert, you know, screaming along about to land at some, you know, point of injury. Um, So that, like, build time and make time to make decisions safely, like, that's just built into everything we do. It's fantastic. Um, But as far as, like, operationally goes, how all these things tie together, the amount of information that we can push to people on the ground and the number of people that are tied in to all of these data links and overall information sharing systems, the amount of technology that's been pushed down to the operator level is phenomenal. Like it, it's so, I'd say it's probably the biggest warm and fuzzy, like coming from a medevac mindset where you're trying to like, you know, um, be everybody's crossing guard and look after everybody and, you know, be the emergency call. Um, to be able to have that same perspective, but when it comes to information and actionable intelligence, to be able to actually push it down to the user, to the unit that's gonna um, that's gonna run with it, um, and to be able to work really closely with units on the ground over and over and over again and build up that rapport, um, that's been huge. And that's what's gotten us probably our best overall impacts. Um, some of it seems like G whiz stuff and, between us and like Spooky is probably the next biggest fan of squirters Um, but I've seen in a lot of operational situations that it's not always the squirters sometimes it's the people that show up to the incident after it's happened trying to check on what's happened those are the guys who are like all right this is who we need to watch because they they weren't in the compound but they have some sort of vested interest in it so we've done a lot of like really cool cross-queue level work to try to build that intel picture and expand that spiderweb of knowledge of things that can then go out and be actioned on at a later date.
0: Yeah. A um, couple of sort of uh, more light-hearted stuff. I don't know how much you've listened to the podcast, but you know, we basically, um, you know, JTAC's fueling themselves on, on black coffee and whiskey is a, is kind of a standing joke that comes up when you're obviously spending long days at work. Are you a, are you a coffee snob or are you a, a, a mint tea kind of girl? Definitely. I don't know.
1: So this is where I'm kind of like a, a little bit of a unicorn in the field. I actually don't drink and I never developed a taste for coffee.
0: Oh, um, okay.
1: So somehow um, I've managed to survive now 13 years in the military like that. Um, I, I like to joke that I'm exclusively powered by hate and duct tape. Um, <laughs> but, but I do like tea. Um, and, you know, otherwise it's just you know whatever weird box to drink in whatever foreign country doesn't taste like total garbage like juice milk tea you know whatever like you know connex you know bottled water that's been sitting there since desert storm take a pick
0: <laughs> yeah tastes like a swimming pool that's all i remember from drinking water out there it's like yeah. where did you make this water um so sort of last thing i always do with everybody is i do the sort of desert island thing if i was going to put you on a desert island what you know what three items would you take with you to the desert island to be able to still function in your role and obviously live a a, a life on a desert island
1: that's a good one um hmm. i mean the basic the basic things that you want um as far as like multi-purpose goes i would love one of those like huge industrial like commercial sized tarps that i could then segment off into different things because that's that's shade that's shelter that's containers for water, you can make a really crappy solar still out of it, like, that'll at least keep me functioning in some capacity, and if I have to use it for signal later, um, either by cutting shapes out or just throwing the plastic in a fire and making it smoky and terrible that way, awesome. Um, And then at least, like, wishful thinking on my part since I'm from Florida, like, if that's a nice desert island, somewhere like the Caribbean or South Pacific, like, man, set me up with a spearfishing kit, like, that's, that's entertainment, that's fun, worst case scenario, I get eaten by a shark and then I don't have to worry about being on a desert (laughs) island anymore, Um, and in the meantime, just, like, some really great fresh seafood would be, would be pretty awesome. Um, mm, Let me think what else. Hmm. I don't know, man, a seasoning kit. I love like food. Like that's probably the hard part about deployments. Is like when you're getting mermites of unidentifiable, just like meat chunks and goo. Um, like having food that you could tell what it is and tastes good. Oh, that's the real treat. Um, so yeah, some sort of backup food or seasoning or just you know something to kind of make it more exciting.
0: I'm gonna. What's your What's the one seasoning? I guess like for me, I, I guess pepper is is the go-to because it's the one that makes everything else work. But what would you uh, have? Garlic garlic okay Just
1: straight garlic like enough garlic to start a garlic farm on that tiny little island i'd be set i probably should have been italian or something
0: <laughs> perfect i pr- appreciate your time Lorraine. if you had one closing thought across the entire community you know guys on rotors guys on fixed wing you know dudes on the grounds JTAC or otherwise what would your closing thought message be to those people
1: I mean, the biggest thing we've all got different communities and different like mindsets and ultimate goals, but I don't know a lot of guys that are flying up above the ground guys that aren't very closely invested in how well you guys are doing. Um, I've, I've never met a bomb dropper, ordnance deployer, et cetera, that doesn't love most of the JTACs that they work with, but just like know that the other dudes out there are definitely fighting for you and they want to keep you in one piece as much as possible. Nobody wants to have to call Pedro. Um, I, the days that I never got a call were my best days at work because I knew nothing bad was happening. And it's, it's an honor and it's a huge burden to have to go out on somebody's worst day, but you do the best job you can and you try to help them as much as possible. But, you know, know that everybody else there is out there to fight and support and give everything we can to the dudes that are on the ground seriously in harm's way. Um, Like, that's the ultimate goal. Like whether it's ISR, helos, you know, pointy nose guys, that's what we're all focused on.
0: Roger that. I think uh, the stronger message that keeps coming through on all of these is that we're stronger together. You know, we only function when we're all working in, you know, pulling together in the same direction. Um, Absolutely.
1: And that's that's US coalition, the whole nine yards. Like everybody's out there. Like we're all on one side.
0: Roger that. Thank you for your time.
1: No, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made and the JTap podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening.